Today's episode, The Wind at the End of the World. After the bomb, buttons will be used as currency. You will have to hold your sweater together with your hands once you have traded your buttons for something to eat. In hotel rooms, instead of a Gideon's Bible, there will be a compass. There will be only one light bulb in town and you will pay dearly to sit beneath it. People will be so scared that a kiss will feel like sex. When you meet someone you like, you will try hard to think of something romantic to say. You will compare the color of their eyes to the flame that comes out of the chimney of the last factory in the city. It will be time for the androids to take over, but since they have not been invented yet, Certain fanatics will volunteer to have their limbs replaced with machine ones. Children will be rare. They will be endangered and we will try to keep them in zoos. They will not like this one bit. We will tell them it is for their own good, that the cages are there to protect them. Before the bomb, your mother embroidered a bird on your peacoat. Once the threads come undone, there will be no more birds. There will be one man who has a dictionary. You will knock on his door and pay him a quarter for a definition. Unfortunately, this man will prove to be a liar. You will look through the debris trying to find some text on the meaning of life. You will forget that we never knew it to begin with, and that we came to the conclusion a long time ago that it was impossible to find. A closet in an elementary school will be discovered untouched. A composition notebook with the name Thomas on it will be considered to be the work of Thomas Aquinas. A pile of math quizzes will be taken to be the tracks on the mechanics of life. Doorknobs found lying in the gutter will be thought to be a byproduct of the Big Bang. People will believe that doorknobs have been on Earth since the beginning of time. The minute someone forgets that the earth is round, 
it will be flat all over again. You will find a carpet lying on the ground. You will rub your feet on it and try and touch someone to see sparks. You will be reminded of the Milky Way that can no longer be seen. Sometimes you will close your eyes and describe what you see. A girl lying beside you on the subway platform will say she sees a goat running down a mountaintop. No matter how hard you try to see what she sees, all you will see is the inside of a clock. You will find a piece of chalk and on the wall you will write the names of songs you used to listen to on the radio so that some record of who you are will persist. You will find a talking doll with holes in its chest like the ones on a telephone receiver. When the doll says, I love you, you will listen harder than you ever did when your own mother said it. The only thing left of your family will be what they stored in a closet under the basement stairs. You had a lunchbox with palm trees that said Miami on it. Your brother had a musical toy that played Love Me Tinder, Love Me Sweet. You will have a photograph of him in an old yellow shirt. He wore yellow dress socks too, even with running shoes. And when he did that, you told him what an ugly fashion statement it was. Now, you wish you had him to talk to. A man with a lisp, talking about people who stabbed him in the back, will be the wind. A mannequin's head will be the moon. And a child cupping her hands against your ear and whispering a dirty secret to you in the alleyway will be a butterfly. Someone will swear they saw a butterfly, but everyone will have become liars. Lies will be the same thing as hope. There will be rumors that butterflies are being manufactured in a factory in Malaysia, but it will be hard to believe. They will say that someone has created cockroaches made of clock parts to scurry through the walls. A cockroach will be remembered as a butterfly without wings, or maybe the other way around. There will be rumors too that there are some human embryos somewhere, safely sleeping in snail shells. Imagining that um, that our world came to an end. Yeah.
let's say God called you, you know, and said, uh, I'm going to be remaking the world and I need your help. Hmm. What would be some of the changes that you would want to put through? Hmm. Well, I might not have humans, actually. I don't think humans are doing that great job with the earth. You know the story of Noah's Ark? Yeah, I do, sort of. You know that, that God decides to rain down on the earth with this flood that's that's intended to wipe out everybody. Yeah, it's sort of depressing if you think about it, because, like, it's basically saying that if you don't believe in God, you're doomed, you know? Hearing that story, like, do you think, like, do you think that it was people's fault? Well, I don't know. People could be, like, maybe sort of annoying him, mm -hmm. but maybe it was just, like, a matter of time. He just sort of, like, got pushed to the itch or something. And just wanted to sort of like start over, so we picked some people that he really liked. Mm -hmm. I think if you were God, you know, it'd be kind of hard to pick just one family, you know. Do you think Noah should have done a better job, maybe, of trying to convince God, like? to call the flood off? Yeah, I think he should have, probably. Like, if you if you were Noah, what would you have, what would you have said to God to defend mankind? I'd say, like, God, what about all the nice things in the world? I'm not really much of a debater or anything. It probably wouldn't be a very good choice for talking to God about anything, really. What animals do you think you'd want to hang out with on the Ark? Um, well, if the Ark had, like, every animal, I'd want to hang out with griffins or dragons or something. But if it was real animals, I'd want to hang out with the seals. Why the seals? Um, I, I really like seals. They're, like, my favorite animal. I really like their eyes. They're just so... They just seem really like soulful, natural creatures. But I guess they'd be in the water. So, yeah. where it's like it's as if the bomb dropped or something you know the streets were completely empty nobody was out and I actually was staying with, with my sister and she lived in Ealing which is about an hour outside London it's, it's, it's a really really long way out and uh, getting home is quite it's a very long process so I get onto the tube and I was riding the car and everyone cleared out and it was just me and this black woman who was um maybe late 20s, had long, long dreads, a very nice-looking, very spiffy-looking woman. And um, I, I was thinking that I was making it very comfortable for her. I thought, oh, you know, woman on the, on the tube at night, she must be kind of scared at times. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm glad that I'm making this a very non-threatening atmosphere for her. I caught her eye a couple of times and smiled in a very non-threatening way, and it was just a very, very nice atmosphere. And um, there's a tube stop in London called White City, and I'm not making this up. 
Now, I saw this guy get on who was um, dressed in the full Nazi regalia, for sure, a total archetypal skinhead, everything. You know, the jack boots, the, the blue jeans, the flight jacket, all the patches, big chains, the, really had everything. You know, the whole Nazi thing. I think he even was wearing a swastika, too, actually, like an armband. And I could see him in the other car. And I was watching him, and he was making some kind of ruckus in the other car. And I was, I was kind of scared, to be honest. I, I was afraid he was going to enter through the doors, and he gets off the train. And, uh, and came into my car, said something to the woman, I don't remember what, called her a name, I guess. And he told him to flip off or whatever. And as he was leaving, he grabbed hold of her dreadlocks and pulled really, really hard. And her head snapped back, and I think she hit the barrier and just you know, you know, let out this scream, you know. And it all happened so fast, it was like my worst nightmare. And I was not on top of the guy, you know, on his back throwing punches. I was sitting there absolutely stunned. And he immediately left the car and uh, was walking away. And the doors were still open, and I was sitting there just white and I was sitting right in front of an open door and as he passed he looked in and he caught my eye and that's when I saw how soft his face was he was incredibly soft friendly sweet round cherubic face and I, I think a mustache really kind eyes and he was in his 40s clearly a dad clearly a boss you know like just like very paternal you know caught my eye and he said with such kindness he said don't worry son I wouldn't hurt you when he said this, his time stopped, like time and stopped. You know what I mean? Like it was just like there was nothing but me and this guy who was very, very, very powerful. And I have to admit, he completely allayed my fears. I mean, I, I felt incredibly calm at that second. Um, you know, I felt like I belonged to this, this club that was exempt from beatings or something. I and mean, it's really hard to describe. The thing I should really explain is that this was 10, 15 years ago. Uh, I looked like a complete clown. I, I used to be into what, what we called a rude boy. You know, I was into a ska. You look like a mod, and to describe that is I had a big green trench coat on that I bought from Army Surplus, a pork pie hat, earrings. And at the time when I was, you know, normally in Montreal, I was victimized constantly. I would get onto the metro and constantly be picked on constantly victimized and lived in a chronic state of fear but here am i in london with a real nazi skinhead the real deal looking at me saying you're exempt you get a pass because you're white so the train started rolling again and i'm on one end of the car and the woman's on the other end of the car and uh you know i'd like to think that i, I would have gone over and comforted her or consoled her but I, I had to be totally honest with you I couldn't really meet her eyes TV, see if there's anything I'd really like. I just like switch channels a lot, like channel surfing. I'm into that. Like I love going to 
one channel and seeing like Pamela Anderson, the next channel is like a religious channel, you know, it's like, I love that. And I ended up stopping at channel 70 and they had like porn and it was like after, and you can tell it's porn because you hear it and you see some of the movement, but it's scrambled. It was just really beautiful. It was kind of like negative, like the image looks negative, mm-hmm. like it was really abstract, like Picasso. And I was just a, kind of um, fascinated with it. Like when it's unscrambled, like you just, I don't know, it's just too graphic. Like it's too explicit. Mm-hmm. It's so like, it's so clinical and it's so, it's too real. I think porn is just so ugly to look at, like the real porn that you buy or that you watch. And and this is like great because you don't see reality. It's you don't see any of the details on a body. It's more like fantasy becomes like fantasy. And I think that's what makes it so appealing. Like I just think I I think a lot of these are also home homemade. I think I can probably do porn here and, and and make some money from it. I was thinking about that for a while. You think about that while you're watching these scrambled porn? Yeah, movies? thinking about, well, I could I could do that. I could shoot someone doing that. I could make so much money. And would you shoot them scrambled? So that when they play on those porn stations and they'd re-scramble it, it would come out perfectly clear. <laughs> that's, that's a good idea. To non-subscribers. Yeah, that's right. You'd have to pay to see it scrambled. And and I don't know how many people would subscribe to Scrum Form, but I think I think if you put enough hype behind it and make it like the next this is the next big thing in porn, I think people would be into it. Which would you prefer to have glasses that showed what um, what someone looked like naked, or glasses that were able to show you what someone's soul looked like? Well, I wouldn't want to have glasses that showed you how they look like naked, but I would rather have glasses that showed you what your soul looked like, because I don't know what it looks like. Can you close your eyes right now and try to, like, just, just imagine and describe what your own soul looks like? Um, well, it would be like, I think it's like fire. It looks like fire. What, what does your soul look like? I don't know. But it's probably scrambled. girlfriends and I were like sitting together one day and we were really fed up most of us were divorced and uh, you know our children had grown up and we we wanted to to meet nice men and uh, it was so difficult I mean one of us had gone on the net and uh, tried to meet people through you know these uh, internet uh, 
things. And mm-hmm. She had a few experiences that were just so awful because people misrepresent themselves, you know. Another friend of mine said, well, maybe we should go to funeral homes to meet men over 50. I mean, she threw it as a joke, but then I, I, I took the idea seriously. And uh, I was the courageous one. I, I, I started it. Why, why, why funerals? Because all the all the uh, normal channels were not working. We weren't meeting anyone, you know. I mean, we're not the kind of women who would go to bars. We want to meet respectable people. Mm-hmm. People that attend funerals. Oh, yeah. Yeah, people who attend funerals are generally, you know, respectable people, decent. I mean, if you pick the right funeral homes. So there's a way to pick the funerals that are going to be better than others yeah, for, for your purposes? Yeah, yeah. How do, you, how do you do that? I'm looking. I got the obituaries here. In the paper? Yeah. So on this page, I can tell you that there are three that I would go to only. For example, something starting with, it is with great sadness that the family announces the passing of Mel on this day, whatever, you know? Uh-huh. That's, that's a good start? Yeah, it is. I mean, it, it shows respect. And uh, then they list, there's a long list of names. Those who mention all members of the family, mm-hmm. like children, grandchildren, aunts, uncles, you know, mm-hmm. um, are generally better, more respectful. Hmm. And, and, and which in turn attracts a, a, a better caliber of, of, of single 50-year-olds. Of course. You know, when you go to a bar or a club, yeah. a disco, you know, you have a couple of drinks and it sort of yeah. puts you in the mood. But looking at a corpse mm. in a coffin, mm. I mean, how can that put you in the mood for love? Oh, oh, you'd be surprised. Uh, it, it does, it does. It's just that finality of death gives you this sudden urge. Oh, God, I have to do something. I have to find someone. I have to do something about my life. Time is of the essence, you know? Mm. You feel that you're not going to live for eternity, mm. and if you're going to find love, you have to find it soon. You're there. You're, you're like, at the edge between life and death. And, uh, you know, you kind of want someone to come and grab you and save you, you know. And who knows, a man might be there who has those qualifications. Do you you have any examples of this? How this, like, worked out well for you? Yes, I do, yes. Um, uh, Once I went to this funeral home, and uh, there was a a guy sitting sort of behind me on the right-hand side. I could see him from the corner of my eye. And... uh, when the funeral finished, uh, we walked out, and uh, I just uh, kind of loitered a bit. And when he 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 was walking sort of behind me, and then I just turned to him and I said, "My God, where did you get those shoes?" And he was, I mean, first he was taken aback, and then he said, uh, then he smiled and he said, uh, "Oh, an interesting question, you know. Why do you ask that?" And I said, "Because shoes can tell me a lot about a man." He said, really? So you were sort of flirting with him? Well, yeah, you could, a little bit, you know, I mean, not too much, of course. You have to be... Respectful of the place you're in. But, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you're in a funeral home. You can't just, you know... But a little bit. 
a little bit, yeah, just a, a little bit, and then and then uh, he said, "You seem interesting, and so why don't we have go and have a coffee and talk about it more?" Did there come a time when you told him that in fact you didn't know the person who had died at the funeral? Did you come clean to him? Oh no, 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 no. That was a white lie. It didn't hurt anybody, so I didn't have to tell him, you know. Do you ever find yourself in these situations where you just feel sort of like an imposter? No, Jonathan, no, I don't. I have an authentic desire to find true love. I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm not hurting anybody. I want to find true love. Once I was attending this... Uh, funeral of a woman mm -hmm. and uh, uh, you know uh, even though she was 90 years old you know I don't know I just felt a bond with her she didn't have a significant other I mean none of that was mentioned in the eulogy right mm -hmm. no one said oh her late husband or this or that and that's very 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 sad I cried and heaved and cried I couldn't stop for like half an hour she hadn't found true love in her life. Mm -hmm. It's it's it just makes makes it's, the thought is unbearable. It's you know life is a journey and and you need you need to to have that in your life. I mean when I think about that poor woman, I don't want to die at whatever age. I mean she was ninety. Imagine living to ninety and not finding true love. Mm. I don't want to be like that. I want to find true love in my life. And uh, you know I'd go anywhere. I, as I told you, I mean. Churches, funerals, uh, mosques, uh, synagogues, uh, anywhere, anywhere, anywhere. Believe me. I mean, if I, if I, you know, if I knew that there was an interesting person in the Sahara, somewhere, and I had to ride camels to get to the place, I would go. I would go to the end of the world to to find true love. What more noble quest can there be? On Wiretap today, you heard Heather O'Neill reading from her work, The Apocalypse. You also heard Molly Johansson, James Hurst, Annie, and Samia Costandi. Wiretap is written and performed by Jonathan Goldstein and produced by Jonathan Goldstein with Sarah Gilbert and Carolyn Warren. You can reach us through our website at cbc.ca slash wiretap.